As I walk amongst these foundations, I see concrete into solid rock, firm and sound. I remember walking amongst the foundations of the old city of Corinth. Rubble, not so firm, not so solid and grounded. Yet Paul writes to the people in Corinth in his first letter to the Corinthians. And we learn what's good about the church. God has built for us a solid foundation, sound and firm. Jesus is the head of our church. So good to have Rod and Kay with us today. The bull pits are here. Welcome them. We've traced the role of Paul in addressing the Corinthian church. Spent a bit of time there now and it's been interesting to note how Paul goes about setting up his authority to speak into uh, the issues that were present in the church in that day. He has a message for them and he started by reminding these people they're actually Christians and committed to following the way of Jesus but he needed to remind them of a few foundational truths and he clearly reminds the church that there are people of God. He starts there. What's good about the church? You are the people. And he reminds them that they've experienced grace and unity. And a couple of weeks ago, Tim Downs reminded us that Paul addresses the need for spiritual maturity in the church and that it doesn't just happen. You and I need to commit to it. Here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 16, if you have a Bible, please open it now. Follow with me. 1 Corinthians 3 and from 16. Paul reminds us that we are God's temple. I believe that's a very big deal in the context of everything else that Paul and the scriptures need for us to know. You've become a place. You are a place that holds great value. You hold the spirit of God inside of you. You're God's temple. And if anything ever was a wow factor, that truth right there sits at the top. Now, why would God use the understanding of the temple to describe us? And pretty much what I'm going to say right at the beginning is that's how he planned it to be. That's how it is. That's why he is describing it that way. Now, this is not a very good example, but <laughs> I wonder if you've been to Canberra and if you've found that kind of building they call Parliament House, all right? As you whip around all those roundabouts and you see this building, it's, it's dominant, it dominates the landscape and that's for a reason, that people aren't going to miss it. The temple in Jerusalem captured the imagination of the people of the day. You see, the Jewish historian, the Bible has a lot to say about the temple, 
But the Jewish historian Josephus writes this way. He reported that the temple was covered on all sides with massive plates of gold. And so when the sun struck it, it radiated such a flash that people who tried to look at it were compelled to turn their eyes from it. What remains of the Jerusalem temple is still amazing today. It must have been such a brilliant building, architecturally, structurally, purposefully. But sadly, it's lost its identity. You can see the Dome of the Rock there. And there is a purpose for the fact that it's lost its identity. God didn't make any mistakes, but the place of the temple has changed. It was to be the place where praises of God's people would ring out to God for all time. And in the Old Testament, the temple was where God dwelt. But there's been a change. And when Jesus came, everything changed. And so 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 16 declares, you are now God's temple. God's spirit dwells in you. And God doesn't need a physical temple anymore because you and I are it. If you're a Christian here today, you're the temple of God. That's wow. He dwells inside us now, within believers. And I know people who've been Christians for a long time who really struggle with that. And they struggle with it for a good reason. They know themselves and they think, well, how could God consider me to be the temple? But the Bible says, we are the temple of God and the Holy Spirit lives within us. God dwells within his people. That's good enough for me. If the Bible says it, I believe it. And I recognise the place of the temple in the Old Testament. No question. But I also accept the word of God in describing that the boundaries have changed. And the intimacy was real and is real. It was in Israel and now it's in us. The intimacy is very real. And the physical and spiritual bodies of God's people now hold the temple. The biggest change is the dwelling place for God's presence. There's structural changes, yes, but the biggest place is that the dwelling place has changed forever. Because when Jesus comes into our lives, he wants to perform an extreme temple makeover. And he changes us from the inside out. And God created us, if you like, in in, uh, simple terms, with a God-shaped void within our heart. And I'll talk about heart in terms of Bible description in a moment a little more. But a God-shaped void in every human is filled, the void is filled when we become a Christian. Because the void is the place and the dwelling place for what God had planned for every person. 
You've all seen the home improvement shows, yeah? Uh, crew comes in, totally renovates some rundown house. I got Foxtel and, man, lifestyle gets a bit of a beating. Um, I, I don't mind seeing some of those makeovers. I, I'd love to have the energy to actually do that in my own house, but it makes it better. That's the purpose. I take what's run down and I make it better with a makeover. And it increases the value of the place. And I believe this is what Jesus wants to do with our lives. It's true that Jesus loves us the way that we are, but he loves us too much to leave us the way that we are. And Jesus is in about uh, the restoration process, isn't he? So do you know that you are the temple of God? There's, uh, that's the point I want to make to start with. And I ask that question because I need to hear a resounding, yes, I know that. And that the spirit of God dwells in you. Because that is foundational to where Paul goes in verse 18. Let's read the NIV version of this to launch us. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in your midst. Never believe what a preacher tells you. Unless you can see it. And know that what is being said totally relates to the scripture. You agree with me on that? Don't take my word or anyone else who stands here or on a podcast or anything else. Don't take that for granted. It has to be founded in scripture. Verse 16 is pretty straightforward, yeah? And verse 17 goes even further. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. In the Old Testament, the presence of God resided in the actual structure of the temple building. And in the New Covenant, the presence of God, his Holy Spirit, lives in believers. And that's a really important distinction that reveals the heart of God for his people and the closeness of relationship that's intended. God wants to have a truth within us that's able to recognise when there is not truth. And that leads us into the next section because God gives a stern warning against defiling his holy temple. And that's a warning to you and it's a warning to me. And how can we defile the temple? Well, pretty obvious if we focus on some of the obvious external things like uh, the physical detriments, uh, you know, really simple smoking, drunk, doing drugs. But I think there are more ways that we can pollute our temples and that's where I want to really focus today. And the top shelf of how we can damage the temple is in our heart, in our heart, which constrains and controls our thinking, our thoughts. In Mark chapter 7, I want to introduce this aspect by going here. Pretty directive. And uh, it's good to choose this because it's Jesus who added, it is the thought life that defiles you. For from within, out of a person's heart. Now, 
you think about a God-shaped void and that being filled with the Spirit of God. So we're not talking about, uh, you know, a heart restoration like I had last year where a, a few arteries are redirected and changed and you have a bit of transplant or whatever happening. I'm talking about that which is within us. So not the organ heart, but the inner person, the inner self, the heart of a human. That which then becomes connected vitally to our thinking and our being. Out of a person's heart come evil thoughts. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, wickedness, deceit, eagerness for lustful pleasure, envy, slander, pride and foolishness. And all these vile things come from other people. Are you reading it? Come from where? Within. This is Jesus speaking. I think he knows the truth about this. They are what defile you and make you unacceptable to God. I think Jesus is more concerned about our heart and our actions than what we say or what we choose to present to others. It's good to remember that Corinth was the centre for intellectual pursuit and culture back in the day. You had Corinth in Greece and you had Ephesus in Asia Minor, Turkey today, separated by a day in a boat. And Corinth had its share of philosophers, science and intellectuals. Remember, Ephesus has that ancient library. Still, the ruins of it are there today. So we're talking about an education corridor here for the known world, well known to be this at this time and some thought pretty highly of themselves they saw themselves as smarter more educated more cultured than others and they openly professed a worldly wisdom like no other and they professed to know more than most and this attitude had to leak into the church like attitudes in our society today leak into the church this was no different at this time They felt that they knew more about scripture and the ways of God than others. And they thought they were wise enough to judge the value of different church leaders. They had uh, pride in the ability to judge the truth. They criticised the local preachers' sermons and probably picked holes in the messages. Glad that doesn't happen today. Do you see why any of this is relevant today? They were judging everything about the local pastors and spiritual leaders of the day, how persuasive they were in their sermon delivery, the logic of their arguments, even the way they spoke. They're judging the abilities and the gifts of people and if they agreed that those abilities were what the church needed for that time, then they were cooperative. But if they didn't, maybe they weren't. And when they didn't agree, they separated themselves and uh, maybe created some little 
pity parties around their disagreements. So the Corinthians have some issues that Paul needs to address. And I want to now read the passage and check out how Paul identifies this culture and how he sets about providing some correction and new direction. So we've read verses 16 and 17, that we are God's temple. And that is absolutely foundational for where Paul goes right now. Because, and let's read it from verse 18. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And verse 23 says, and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. They gathered themselves around Paul, Cephas and Apollos and some with a spiritual arrogance actually just proclaimed that they gathered themselves around Christ. So Paul's job is to make them realise that the solution to their division within the church was for them to recognise that they were deceiving themselves and he urges them to renounce this self-deception. Verse 18 just puts it out there. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think that you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. And there's a little bit of background to Paul's charges to help us understand why Paul boldly tells them, just don't deceive yourselves. The Corinthians had access to the scriptures and they enjoyed the scriptures and the ways of God. This is a church. They enjoyed philosophy and theology and were in a great city where both were freely encouraged and openly discussed. There's a cocktail of ideas and intellectual freedom, if you like. They had the privilege of being ministered to by some of the most outstanding preachers, not only of their day, but in history. Paul, Peter, Apollos. And we may sometimes uh, miss that they had received an unusual outpouring of the gifts of God's spirit for the establishment of the church, including the establishment of the church in Corinth. And here we're given this insight that the Corinthian church's problem was that they wanted worldly recognition. They wanted to be known as well-educated, intellectual, gifted and capable of understanding the world and God. And we may think, what's wrong with that? But what I see in the scripture is this is what was consuming them. And so that's why it's wrong. This was their focus. That's what they were about. And the thing is, they couldn't hide these thoughts or attitudes from God. And I I want to put it out there. It's good that God knows our thoughts because there is great understanding and accountability for us when the Holy Spirit brings that to our attention. Amen?
They were not able to hide anything from God. None of us can. And God revealed these things to Paul in order for us to have a message today. That's the reality. And the result of their attitude wasn't good. They'd begun to follow their own ideas. They'd trusted in their own thought life and they drifted to where that was taking them. You know, if you get on a floaty, which uh, I regularly did when I lived in Cairns, we'd go to Ross and Lock, uh, jump off the bridge, have a tyre or some kind of inflatable tube and, and go with the current, right? If you jump on a floaty, you usually go where that current's taking you. And if you allow your thought life to drift in a certain direction, you will go where that thought life is taking you. They were driven by their thoughts, not their relationship with the Father through Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Instead of walking steadfastly in God's direction, they were heading in whatever direction their thought life took them. That makes sense? It's kind of a human action, isn't it? I know what that's like. But it led for them to their own rationalizations and apparently somehow led them to disregard the will and the word of God for their life. Thoughts are powerful and God knows our thoughts. He knows what and how we think and there is nothing we can do to hide that from him. They exalted their own intellect. They placed their own trust in their own abilities and wisdom. And I'll say it again. It is good that God knows our thoughts because he, through the power of the Spirit, will reveal to us what we shouldn't do in terms of following our own thoughts and attitudes. Isn't that great? That is grace. That is hope. That is provision. That is God at work. So Paul gets in their face and he tells them that worldly wisdom is nothing compared to God's wisdom. And I want to drift in to uh, verse 19 now. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. It's written, he catches the wise in their craftiness and again the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. Yes, men recognise the problems in our world when it comes to evil and suffering that's caused by natural disasters. And there's a, a lot of rescue work and, and genuine support and encouragement and uh, recovery that happens. When there's disease or hunger and and, and some men give their lives to trying to understand and conquer the problems of the world. Because of sin, there are problems in the world and, and people respond to that. They try to do through science, education, technology, religion. I mean, we've seen so much happening in the last two years, haven't we? Changes in our world and lots of good people have been involved in those changes. 
with good character development being shown. But it doesn't matter who you are, whatever you are trying to achieve in your own steam, on your own steam, in your own way, will eventually fail. Will eventually have a full stop. No matter how much worldly wisdom is involved in trying to solve the problems, it's always going to come up short. It'll work for a while. God created people for a reason, to be smart for a reason. It'll work for a while. But without God, we are not going to make it. And the problem is that when the church or any other part of society approaches God and the problems of the world through worldly wisdom, the result is failure. And that's the path that the Corinthian church chose and it's the path that's often chosen by churches today. Can't buy humility, yeah? So I want to suggest uh, three reasons why worldly wisdom fails to grasp the truth. And the first one is it only gets to the surface. Worldly wisdom will never know everything there is to know. It only seems to be wise. Man only thinks he understands God and his ways. Man's knowledge only scratches the surface when it comes to God. And no person can understand the world without understanding God, no matter who he is. Back in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 6, we looked at this a few weeks ago. The only way we can understand truth or know God is for God to reveal that to us, which he has done in his word and by his spirit. We don't know anything about God unless he reveals it. Amen? The only way the truth can be known is for God to give us his truth. And that's the whole point of scripture. Any wisdom that seeks to know God apart from his revelation is only scratching the surface. And I want to say the world's wisdom is not God's wisdom. There is a chasm between man's understanding and God. Diametrically opposed and different. The wisdom of this world through science and intellect is limited, but God's wisdom is unlimited. Praise God that he shares his wisdom with us so we have science. Amen? And uh, he has given us intellect and a thought process and, and brilliant attitudes so that we have the discoveries that we have. There are no discoveries without God sharing his wisdom. You believe that? That's just a fact of life. Paul says that a person must become what the world calls a fool if he wants to know God and the real truth. Everything about God as we know it is foolishness to the world. And here's the third one. That worldly wisdom is actually foolish. It's a brand of silly because there's only one way that the sinful and imperfect person could ever be acceptable to God. Only one way that we can be acceptable to God. God's perfect, we agree. 
All theology is based upon the truth of God's revelation in his word. And what we learn is God is perfect. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He knows our thoughts, everything else about us. So a perfect God would have to love the sinful person so much that he would just accept him. And what's John 3.16 say? God loved the world so much that he gave his only son. What a call. God cannot accept us outside God's perfect way, which is through, name our Saviour, Jesus Christ. And it's Paul who describes him, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is so connected to the gospel all of the time. And I, I want to say to you that there aren't any shortcuts to wisdom. God knows our thoughts and his inspiration gets us to where we need to go. Not our thinking, not our capacity, but his inspiration gets us to where we need to go. Our job is to follow, yeah? And I want to finish with these next two verses which really consolidate what Paul's response to intellectual foolishness really is. So then, verse 21, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours. In verse 22, whether it's Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all things are yours and you are of Christ and Christ is of God. Paul says, stop boasting in men. To boast in men means to trust men. And here's the extension that this can lead to. Here's the danger. Boasting in men means to look upon men as the answer. Boasting in uh, even what really great preachers and leaders, great job. There's some great preachers and podcasts around. But if that's your thing, if that's where you've gotten to, if that's where you're at, if that's in comparison with the Corinthians, that's who you've become, that every time you want an answer, you type in, I want to know what so-and-so's got to say. I think there's a trap there. Relying on people for the source of life and blessing. Be careful not to get to the point of saying, I wonder what this person would say about this. And it doesn't matter what Mark Sayers or John Piper or R.C. Sproul or Albert Moeller or Joyce Meyer or Anders Stanley or David Jeremiah. And we used to say what Bill Hybels or Ravi says. It just doesn't, you know, I think go to the scriptures and then check them out on whether they're actually right in what they say. Isn't that a tip? Just don't go and find out your answer from someone, even if it's someone you trust, but know the answer and then get the assistance and help on how to apply that. Does that make sense? And God will give you the answer if, in fact, you ask him. 
Try this. Pray, Lord, I need help. And I don't even mind if you use Google to give you some verses to go to, but go to those verses, not someone's opinion about the verses, but go and open your Bible and read it. And this is what I guarantee. God will work in your heart. You know, not your vessel, the work in your inner being to reveal the answer that you actually have a question for. Isn't that sweet? And here's my other guarantee, he won't let you down. Paul is saying that God knows your thoughts and God alone can provide your needs. So go there first, go to God, go to his word, then the Holy Spirit will guide you into all wisdom. I love the consistency of the word of God. I love the truth of the word of God. And I know that God won't let you down. In 1 Corinthians 3 and 21b, it says, all things are yours, only because of Christ and what he's done for us. Believers owe their lives to Christ, not to any man. Christ is God's in the sense that he obeyed God as our saviour. And he gave up his life for us. I love that Jesus was obedient to the Father even unto death. It's good to be loved, isn't it? Christian, it's good to be loved, isn't it? Wow. That God would love us so much. And it's good to know that we have the opportunity to work this through in our thought process that God gives us intellect for a purpose, that when our head and our heart are aligned in purpose, our following makes sense. And it's not just possible, it's a done deal when our head and our heart are convinced of the purpose of God in sending Jesus to die that we might believe in him and follow him, make him the purpose of our life. It is our desire to be firmly founded and safely grounded and that God is the focus of glory. All our worship, all our heart, that God is the focus of glory. And I don't mind if we appreciate the great preachers. Totally, I'm on that. I get on that loco most days, right? But if that captures your heart, miss the point of God's inspiration to those great teachers. I think God wants us to do some work in our relationship with him. And then it floods through our intellect and our heart, it floods us with response. May God be praised. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are the giver of all good things. We acknowledge, God, that there are no other gods but you. 
And it is so great to have the intentionality in the heart of God to reveal to us what you want us to be and to do. And so we want to thank you. We want to glorify you. We want to recognise, Lord, that we are yours. Jesus came for a reason. Recognise you know our thought life. We praise you that you do because you don't leave us stuck in our thoughts. You rescue us and you show us our your plan. We love you, Lord, with all of our heart.